It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, say a very good Monday morning to Mr. John Redwood, Conservative MP for Wokingham, member of the COVID Recovery Group. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I'm feeling quite good today, John. I mean, every Monday is a different sort of roller coaster ride for me. This particular Monday, I'm thinking we had a great weekend with England getting through to the Euro semi-finals. It looks as though Boris Johnson's finally going to say what we've been urging him to say this afternoon. Uh, what do you make of it all? Yeah, I share your optimism. The, the sun has even managed to shine after <laughs> weeks of cold and rain. So maybe things are looking up, Mike. Your independent republic always sounds great, but of course... I have to live in the monarchy of the United Kingdom and we get an awful lot of advice from our medical advisors which uh, point in the other direction to freedom. Yes. I mean, I don't know whether it was the kind of um, the, just the change in, in, in staff that was needed, but Matt Hancock leaving and Sajid Javid coming in does seem to have sort of slightly turbocharged um, Boris Johnson to go back to the opening up the economy, remembering that we're not just dealing with COVID, that we have to get all sorts of other things fixed as well. I think there's a bit of coincidence about that. I, I think you can't just simply blame Matt Hancock. Um, Matt Hancock was the voice uh, for Witty and Valance, the principal scientific and medical advisors in the government, and they've been very strongly urging prudence and caution. And that doesn't suddenly change when you get a change of Secretary of State, but I think it, it coincided with the Prime Minister in his own mind wrestling with these uh, alternative views of the world and deciding that maybe we've been prudent for long enough. And I think he has become persuaded of the crucial point that you and I and others have been making, that the vaccine seems to mean that whilst you get more cases from time to time, you don't get more serious cases and you don't get more deaths, that, that those things remain under extremely good control. It looks as if the vaccines are working. So let's enjoy that. Let's cash in on the big advance that our scientists in the NHS have made by getting people vaccinated. And let's have a normal life and get our freedoms back. Exactly right. Well, exactly, because, I mean, I was talking to people all last week in various parts of the world, including somebody who called me from Turkey, uh, who's living there, an English guy, 25 years of age, working and living in Turkey. He said, even in Turkey, he said, you can now do whatever you want. And you just think to yourself, you know, we had such a great advantage with the vaccination rollout. We were so far ahead of the rest of the world. And we've somehow allowed it to kind of, you know, make us fall back behind everybody. Yeah, I think that there was a bit of delay that I didn't want. That was why I voted against it, of course, in the mm. House of Commons. But there were only about 50 of us who took that view. I think there are many millions in the country who take that view. And I think more millions are joining us. And what is wrong with the approach that you let people make their own decisions? So that if someone has 
a good reason to be very worried about their health, uh, if they don't like vaccines, whatever it may be, they can make that call and they can look after themselves and don't go to the parties and don't go to the pubs. But other people want to get on with a more normal life and they feel pretty secure because of the vaccine uh, and they accept that life is full of medical risks of kinds we can't completely control. Yes. Now, I know that this is probably not foremost in most people's minds, but I'm sure that you, you would want to see a return to Parliament of all the MPs and a return to sort of normality in the Chamber of the House of Commons. Have you heard whether or not that is coming? Well, I trust it will happen on the 19th, assuming that they do what we hope they're going to do, because it would be quite odd if Parliament wasn't really allowed to go back properly. And it's true that any MP can insist on going into Parliament at the moment, but mm. a lot of us don't because there are only 25 seats on each side and it's quite difficult getting a seat and you don't have a proper debate uh, and everybody has to queue and has to put in in advance and so it doesn't make any difference whether you're on television or in mm. the chamber. We want to get back to a big noisy Parliament where people are uh, jostling and trying to get position and, and where you can have several hundred in when the thing is really important. Uh, and that I think we owe the public as soon as all the other controls are released. Mm. And you, John, are uh, what I would call a sort of, without wishing to be disrespectful, a veteran of, of our parliamentary democracy. You've seen many governments come and go. Are you worried, as some people are, that this government seems to kind of operate outside of Parliament quite often. They make announcements without really putting them to Parliament first. Because they've got such a big majority, they don't really take that much notice, even of backbench groups like your own. Um, can we get sort of more parliamentary democracy back, do you think? I don't think this government is particularly undemocratic. All governments like to be in charge and all governments like to manage Parliament. Indeed, that's their job. You don't have coherent government unless the government knows how to manage Parliament. And the reason that I and my colleagues haven't been able to do more in the direction you would like on the COVID controls is that whilst there have been uh, up to 50 Conservatives, enough to overturn the majority and make the government listen, the opposition parties have been with the government. Mm. So there's been an overwhelming majority in Parliament for all these controls. So, of course, we, we didn't have much power or influence. But I think now our voices have got to the government and the voices of the public have got to the government. And so it, it, I assume, will make that democratic move towards more freedom as soon as possible. And my other concern, Sir John, is, is also with, with, within sort of the way that government works, having taken all the advice that they do take and continue to take from Sage and various other advisers, I would rather like to see those people taking a bit of a step back, to be honest, and not being quite so involved in the day-to-day -day yeah. running uh, of, of, this, of this country. Well, I, I didn't welcome the idea that you, you gave your scientific and medical advisors, politicians' roles mm. to present the case to the public as often and as prominently as they've done. Uh, but let's make that a one-off. Our, our tradition is that the ministers have all that great advice available. They have to sit through it. They have to put it into context. They have to apply common sense. Sometimes they disagree with it. And they are then responsible both for the advice they took and for the advice they didn't take. And that is a perfectly sensible democratic system. As soon as you get advisors taking strong views on what are really political issues, like whether you and I can go to the pub or not, um, they then expose themselves to a kind of political debate, which they're not equipped to do and they're not elected to do. So I think it's not a healthy development and I welcome getting back to advisers advising and politicians yes. deciding and defending. And once we do begin, as we inevitably will, to move out of this kind of, you know, paralysis of COVID, 
What for you are the priorities um, for this government now in terms of what they should be looking at uh, to start kind of, you know, making policy on uh, encouraging business, whatever it is? What, what, what would be your sort of top three aims? Well, for this government? I, I campaigned in the last two elections on putting prosperity first. I didn't want austerity. I wanted prosperity. So I'm looking for a major impact on the economy for recovery, more jobs, more better paid jobs, more skills. Uh, growing and making more things at home for our own purposes uh, and creating those conditions in which all parts of the country can attract investment, develop their own enterprise, have more entrepreneurs so that there are many more better paid jobs and more facilities and services on offer to the rest of us. So I, I think that's the big challenge and, and that encompasses levelling up, that encompasses build back better and all this other language they're using. But to me, it's just about the prosperity of the British people and everything we do now should be geared to giving people more prosperous and happier lives by creating the right conditions for them. And you at all worried about the debt that we've that we've sort of um, that we've found ourselves owing? No, not because uh, I think we've got away with it. I think all the main advanced countries have done the same thing. They borrowed massive amounts to try and offset the huge damage the anti-pandemic measures have found to do to the economy, and they've printed that uh, through their central banks. And we've got away with it without a major inflation, which is why you don't normally do that kind of thing. And as long as we now go back to something more like normal, um, all will be well. And I think the budget deficit will come screeching down as soon as we have a full-blooded recovery. Right. Why is the deficit so big? Well, it's because we've been giving loads of subsidies on furlough and to businesses to keep them going. They won't need that because they'll be generating money from customers. And our tax revenues have been greatly depressed because they... The companies haven't been making the profits and the people haven't been earning the, the dividends and the extra income. Uh, that will all correct quite quickly if we go for this full-throated recovery. So the deficit comes down and we will have got away with the debt, which is owed to ourselves because the, the Bank of England bought up a great deal of it. Yes. And as far as the kind of recovery goes from COVID, are you convinced that on July the 19th, all restrictions will go? We're hoping to hear this afternoon from Boris. Um, but will we be talking about people not having to take a test if they go abroad, not have to take a test when they come back, not have to take a test to go and watch football or, or a, a Rod Stewart concert? You know, what's going to be the, the action? What, what do you think it's going to look like? Well, I want all the domestic controls to go and leave it to people's own judgment. I don't think we can guarantee getting rid of all the international travel controls because many of those will be imposed by the countries people are thinking of traveling to or be required by international airlines. I don't know whether we'll get rid of all the controls. I, I look forward to the statement as much as you do this afternoon. I'm hoping, but I dare say the, the medical and scientific advisors are also hoping that they can still keep some of the controls in place because they are very worried about getting rid of them all in, in one big bang. I think it's time to have one big bang for the domestic situation now. I think people have had enough of it. Uh, and most people reckon that they're not now going to get a serious version of the disease. No, indeed. Let me just ask you to hold uh, your uh, horses where you are, please. So John Redwood, we're talking to uh, the Conservative MP for Woking, and we'll be back on Talk Radio with John Redwood, because uh, I want to talk to him about England, I want to talk to him about the policing of the England fans, and I want to talk to him about a great many other things. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP for Wokingham, member of the COVID Recovery Group, 
John, one of the things that people raise with me all the time uh, as something that needs to be sorted out, and I know that Priti Patel talks about sorting it out an awful lot, uh, but it's the illegal immigration problem uh, of people coming here on dinghies, you know, uh, across the water from uh, Calais uh, and being sort of basically brought in by border force and then basically welcomed into the country and never to leave. Yeah, well, I think the Home Secretary is strongly against that uh, and she is going to take further action, uh, which we will see shortly. Mm. I'm very glad that she's sent very clear instructions to Border Force and to her other officials to say that we wish to stop this illicit trade, this human trafficking. And I'm very pleased that she is going to bring new legislation before the House uh, this week. Uh, because the courts aren't very helpful either. I think she's been very frustrated in recent months because the government's line has been clear, this trafficking must stop. We don't want people queue jumping. We don't want rich people uh, giving money to human traffickers to try and queue jump to get into our country when they aren't proper asylum seekers or refugees. And the legislation is meant to help enforce that view. Yes. The other big story, of course, is is the way that schools have been operating uh, over the course of the last year. We know, for example, now that there are something like 400,000 children and possibly more currently out of school, having been sent home because they were uh, either pinged yeah. or because they were told that somebody in their class had COVID. They've got to sort the schools out here, haven't they? Well, I think they need to look at the whole self-isolation test and trace system because I think it is throwing up far too many examples where people are advised or, or required to self-isolate and we're going to end up with far too many people not able to participate in the economic recovery or not able to send their children to school and then isolating the rest of the family uh, when the risk is minimal and so I think we need a, a new look at when do people have to self-isolate and how do you get out of it I mean if you if you test negative and you clearly don't have the disease why have you got to sit around for another 14 days right and, and if masks are to be uh, made, shall we say, voluntary, surely what we must also uh, ensure is that children are not forced to wear masks in school. Well, I quite agree. Um, I, I think we need to get rid of the masks most of the time in most places. I mean, as someone who is, is a member of parliament that wants to do more of my business in person, obviously I, I will ask. And if, if people meeting me want masks, then I will respect their wishes. But otherwise, I don't want to be wearing a mask. Uh, if you go to a hospital, then, of course, you need special protective equipment for dealing with patients and so forth. So we need them in the right places and where people need them for comfort. Mm. And finally, England, uh, the football team have been remarkably successful so far. Uh, they're now in the semi-finals. I've often believed that there is a kind of a beneficial effect to any government where, when, a, when a national football team does well. Um, Boris is kind of basking in their glory. I say good luck to him. Well, I agree. I think the whole nation will, will be uh, mightily impressed and overjoyed if England goes on to win the trophy uh, overall, which they could now do, because I think this is a, a team transformed. Mm. I, I think the England team for many years has looked a bit negative and defensive. You feel they've got the whole weight of the country on their back and they're very worried about making a mistake. Suddenly we've got this amazing team full of enterprise and innovation and good ideas and wanting to get the ball forward and knowing where the goal is. Yeah. You know? right. And this incredible defence that they've got through the competition so far without a single goal and they've been up against some very good teams. And I now hear people saying, well, of course, the, UK, the Ukraine wasn't much competition. Well, it was only not much competition because the English team was absolutely, mm. absolutely spectacularly good. Yeah. They absolutely. just beat an extremely good team.
Indeed. And if you are uh, in, a, in a position to speak to Priti Patel between now and Wednesday, could you say to her, because I often wonder why the police get this so wrong. I don't know what the police were doing and I don't know all the circumstances, but the police appeared to be basically arresting people on Saturday night for celebrating England's win. I mean, given what's going to be happening very shortly and, and the restrictions being lifted, the police just need to back off a bit if people are partying, don't they? Well, I, I haven't seen the incidents you describe, and I think it's um, not a good idea for MPs to tell the police how to do their job. But obviously what the public want is the police to concentrate on the minority of, of fans or enthusiasts who, who become violent against people, who start damaging property. But we don't want to get in the way, surely, of people just having a nice time and celebrating something that's been good. No, I think that's absolutely right. So, John Redwood, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Wokingham, member of the COVID recovery group, optimist, man who would like to see, uh, as I would, the, lo the, the lockdown being lifted, the restrictions disappearing, and all uh, of the problems that we've had just simply floating off into the ether. It can be done. It should be done. And perhaps this afternoon we'll find out from Boris Johnson that it will be done. There are many people out there who are not so certain that all the restrictions will be lifted. It may well be that they will not, but it is in our hands, ladies and gentlemen. And what I want to know from you uh, is what you've been doing, what you've been seeing, uh, how you're planning to celebrate Wednesday. Because if Wednesday happens and England go through to the final of the Euros at Wembley, it's going to be a massive boost for the economy, a massive boost for the country and a massive boost, basically, for freedom. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk about England because it is quite a week. It is quite a fantastic week if you are interested uh, at all in the, the world of sports because, of course, it's Wimbledon's second week uh, going into the final on Sunday. And, of course, uh, it is uh, England in the semi-finals of the Euros. Tomorrow night, it's going to be Spain versus Italy. Uh, then on Wednesday night, it's going to be England um, versus Denmark. And could they get to the final? Could they? It could be amazing, couldn't it? Let us talk now uh, to Duncan Wright, senior football reporter at The Sun, who was in Rome uh, for the game on Saturday. Duncan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. So what was it like in Rome? Because it looked to me, and I saw sort of some evidence, that there were quite a few England fans who had made it there from all sorts of parts of the world. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, I think in the build-up to the game, many people suspected that Ukraine would have the, the bigger crowd presence because there's a, a 250,000 Ukrainian community based over in Italy. Mm -hmm. But in, in the event, with, with the restrictions that Italy had in place, I mean, ev everyone essentially from anywhere else in the world could come over. I was speaking to a, a chap who was one of two on one of two A380s coming over from Dubai. Oh, really? Uh, especially for the match, yeah. So the, the, the America, all across Europe, people people made the journey all across. And in the event, the stadium was probably about 75% England, which was, was fantastic and very loud. It was very loud, but of course, not anywhere near as loud as Wembley's going to be on Wednesday, which will be absolutely stonking, won't it? Yeah, it's, it, the game against Germany at Wembley was... It, it was it was amazing for two reasons. One, because obviously we beat Germany, but secondly, it was it was almost as though it was a party atmosphere. So the fans have been able to release themselves. So that was only forty five thousand. This match has got sixty five thousand, and it'd be interesting to see whether the atmosphere is the same because obviously the German there's so much meaning about the Germany game mm. and and the celebrations of the way the game was won was was late on. So that was why it was so vocal, but. I think with the expectation building, I'm, I'm sure 65,000, predominantly English. Again, the Danes have got about 1,500 to 2,000 UK-based uh, su supporters available to, to go into the stadium. But it's, it's essentially a home game 
to England. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, as far as you're aware, have most of those tickets now gone? Because I'm not really sure how these ticket uh, ticketing events actually work these days. Because I know that a lot of the tickets... Oh, we spoke to a couple of guys from, from the England sort of fan clubs who get the tickets allocated to them, and they've already got theirs. But if they up the number that can go, does that mean more tickets are suddenly available to the general public or not really? Yeah, they, they upped the, the number about a, a week ago, I think it was, and, and they you had to go through the UEFA portals. More became available once they knew who was going to be the teams in in the semi-final, but uh, they're gone. I mean, for love nor money, I've, I've been trying for a, a few friends and family as well to try and get some and not been able to get any, and I think that's been the same pattern for anyone else who's tried to get some, and the ones that are available are the kind of the prohibitive £300 UEFA in it for all tickets, you know, they, they want everyone to be part of the game and then charge £300 for the privilege. But, yes. uh, I don't think there were many of those left either. <laughs> no, quite. And I don't know what the celebrations were like, if any, uh, in Rome, but certainly there were some big celebrations here uh, on Saturday night, as you might expect. And I would imagine if England win on Wednesday, there'll be even more. Now, I'm not asking you to make any decisions based upon your knowledge of the Metropolitan Police, but it looked to me like the police were, were not really dealing with that terribly well. They were kind of, you know, going in quite aggressively on these fans. It was just having a good time. Yeah, look, we didn't see much of the post-match celebrations uh, out in Rome, and certainly the ones that were there all enjoyed it without any problem. I think the, the issue you've got, and Gareth Southgate spoke about it after the game, he wants fans to enjoy themselves, have a beer, but within the rules. Now, mm. what, what we've got to look at in, in terms of the policing, you, you just hope everyone's sensible. If, if people are having a good time and having a, a drink, obviously the rules are in place for a reason, and we've got to abide by the rules. Um, but let's take, take a common sense approach to it. There's going to be drunkenness, isn't there? So yeah. I think the key to it all is is just have some common sense somewhere deep down in in your mind, even once I've had about six or seven pints. You know, just, just know that. <laughs> well, this is it. Go swanning around and. Well, that's that's the thing, and I mean, also if Boris this afternoon comes out and says, right, everything's everything's going away on uh, July the nineteenth, I think some people on Wednesday might go, oh well, it's all disappearing soon anyway, so we might not bother. Yeah, that may be the case, and you've probably seen that has been happening since Matt Hancock, hasn't it? A lot, I know a lot of people have almost given up on, on a lot of things since Matt, Matt Hancock's uh, situation came out. But I, I think over and all is said and done, we, after the Germany game as well, most most people, most places got on, had a good time after it. And, and, and I think the police have generally policed it pretty well. You right. know, they, they've not been they've not been hands on. Certainly the ones I've seen around Wembley, they've been been a very light touch police presence the police are there but other than that everyone's been able to get along with enjoying themselves in the best way possible yeah and as far as you guys are concerned who've been covering the england football team for many years i mean are you surprised at how well they're doing are you surprised at how well they're playing on, on the one side yes because there was there were some concerns whether they would be able to perform at the highest stage and whether this team was was not quite experienced enough because there's so many young players in mm. there but and the other thing, look, England got the predominantly the, the, the best players around in terms of comparable with the, the, the main teams in the competition. And what, what Gareth Southgate has done, he's got them organised, he's got them playing to a certain certain way and a certain feeling. So they're, they're a very united side. You know, there, there's no superstars in there as such that we've seen in a lot of England squads in the past. They're playing as a unit and, and that's been rewarded by their progress through this tournament. So yeah. I, I think it, it's, it's been coming... Um, and everyone's expected it to come, whether we thought it would come 
quite so soon as this tournament uh, is, is open to question. Yes, because people have often said in the past that they're not that good at tournament football. But when you look at the performance against Scotland, which wasn't great, they've got a lot better since then. So it's almost as though they've suddenly realised, actually, yeah, the good thing about tournament football is you get better as you get further in it. Um, and so it looks as though they're yeah, actually peaking at the right time. And I think the other way, way the expectation to go out and demand uh, free-flowing attacking football, three goals against Scotland and whatnot. Gareth Southgate is managing as a, a, a tournament. You know, he, he has got them. We needed to get seven points to get through the tournament. Mm. We've played within ourselves. We're rotating the squads. And it has been a, a tournament where England have managed themselves through always playing a t through playing tournament football. And they went into Ukraine. Uh, they went to Rome to play Ukraine and did a complete number on them, opened themselves up a bit better. The, the, the hope is now that they will take that forward against Denmark. The only concern is Denmark are another side that are very tournament focused. You know, they're, they're very methodical in the way they approach it. They're, they're playing in the same way as England are playing. So you, you just hope that England can overcome a, what won't be a very easy Denmark side. And I think a lot of people already saying England are going to be in the final. That's far too forward thinking. Mm. I think Denmark really, really do pose a, a, a big danger to England. Yes, I think that's absolutely true because they, they do appear to be a very quick team. They appear to be a very attacking team. They don't have any fear. They've got some very talented players and, and, and a lot of players who also know the England game quite well. Yeah, there's so many players that, I mean, Denmark has always as a nation looked at the English game, but so many now play in England as well. And I think what needs to be also taken into account is they're playing on a wave of emotion mm. as a result of what happened to Christian Eriksen in that first game that the support that they garnered in 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 Denmark as a whole and the feeling within the squad they are playing almost with that extra will that extra drive within them and it, it's carried them through the tournament so far obviously that gets you so far and then ultimately quality tends to come to the fore but you know England are on this wave of emotion in this country but Denmark are very much on their own emotional roller coaster and a wave that's taking them through carrying the momentum through so that, you know, they really shouldn't be underestimated. No, I think that's absolutely right. And any kind of um, problems from the previous game that are going to carry on? I know people were talking about people uh, players on yellow cards and stuff, but, I mean, at this point, you, you don't worry about that, really, do you? No, no, the, the yellow cards are wiped off after the quarterfinals. Okay. So they start on a clean slate, so there are no concerns. Um, Fitness-wise as well, Bakayo Saka missed the match. He had a slight twinge in, in training, but he's going to be fit for the game soon. It looks as though Southgate is going into the game with a fully fit squad available to choose from. So there are no excuses. You know, England have got no excuses. They're playing the right way. They're, they're, they've come into the into the semi-final now with all their key players fit and firing. So they go into it in the, in the best possible way. Well, it's going to be a great night. We shall be covering it here. You'll be covering it at The Sun, obviously, as well. Duncan, thank you very much indeed. Duncan Wright, senior football reporter at The Sun. Absolutely extraordinary time uh, to be an England fan because so many England fans have hated watching England for so many years. Now, it's actually quite enjoyable, isn't it? Quite remarkable. How about this uh, from someone who was up in Liverpool? Mike, I was kicked out of a bar in Liverpool on Friday as I dared to talk to a woman as we were both coming back to our tables from going to the toilet. This is insanity. And far too many people are enjoying the power these so-called rules have given them. Well, there's no doubt that there is an awful lot of jobsworths out there who love the idea of pushing people around. Hopefully that all comes to an end on July the 19th, if not before. But on Wednesday night, if England win and get to the final, there will be absolute mayhem and probably some carnage out on the streets. But the police are going to have to be very careful 
Because what I don't want to see is a load of people getting arrested uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, I've got a statement here from the Metropolitan Police. As a result of the policing operation for Euro 2020 on Saturday the 3rd of July, this is the Metropolitan Police, by the way, nine arrests were made, six males were bailed pending further inquiries. A 32-year-old man was given a penalty notice for disorder, for drunken disorderly behaviour, and another 32-year-old man received a caution for assault. A 58-year-old man was charged with a fray and assault. Well, it doesn't sound as though it was a massive riot, does it? They've arrested nine people, but I see I saw pictures of the police lining the streets, you know, steaming in, you know, and doing all sorts of things, which could only have exacerbated whatever the situation was. Surely it would make sense if you're crested a dick, and I know she doesn't do sense very well, to actually just let them par- party. You know, if they're partying in the middle of Piccadilly Circus, so be it. You really need to start arresting people because they're celebrating a football match? I don't think that's a great idea. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, I don't know if you saw, by the way, over the course of the weekend, pictures that he put out of him celebrating the goals uh, as they went in uh, watching the England game in a pub. We'll talk a little bit about that maybe coming up in a short while. We're going to go to the phones in a moment. But here's another thing uh, that has slightly irked me this morning. Um, Apparently, according to the BBC, uh, they decided they needed a new logo. Now, I don't know if you've got a copy of The Sun in front of you, but if you're not watching this on YouTube, you won't see this. But if you are watching it on YouTube, uh, or indeed on Twitter, you will see uh, that the BBC have designed a new logo. Uh, There's the old logo there, uh, which doesn't look much different to the new logo here. Uh, What it seems to have done is they've made the letters slightly smaller, right? They've made the squares slightly further apart, um, and that's it. So the new logo, uh, which was commissioned, as you can imagine, by an entire committee of executives of the BBC, all of whom are collectively paid in excess of a million pounds, they decided uh, to spend about £50,000 of our money on a new logo. But it's not a new logo. It's like the Emperor's new clothes. They haven't really changed anything. They've made the letters slightly smaller and they've spaced out the letters a little bit more like that. Yeah, 50,000. How much for that? 50,000? I mean, what's wrong with these people? What is wrong with them? It's an absolute and utter disgrace, as far as I'm concerned. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of the BBC now. Uh, I've just had enough. It's frankly ridiculous. It's now getting to the point where it just doesn't make any sense at all. For God's sake. Let us say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. We'll get to your uh, uh, encounter with the e-scooter later. What do you make of uh, Boris uh, and his announcement pending this afternoon? Are you one of those who thinks it might not be quite what we're expecting? Well, we know it won't be total. For instance, there's been a a lot of uh, fuzziness around the edges of the promise that we will no longer be forced to wear masks on our faces. I think there will be places where this will continue to be compulsory. I, for instance, uh, suspect I still won't be able to give blood in England. Uh, because the National Blood Transfusion Service, absurdly, given that everybody who goes to blood clinics is healthy, has the toughest uh, mask restrictions in the country. It doesn't allow for any exemptions. And I I think that, that as far as I can see, the NHS is not going to have the the mask degree lifted from it. And I have a feeling that there will be strong pressures who retain it in some form of public transport as well. So there'll be that. It doesn't look to me at all as if travelling abroad is uh, particularly easy yet. 
uh, many of the rules about going out and doing things uh, w will continue, I think, to be irksome and annoying. We're a long way away from it because we have basically surrendered control of our lives to the government and we now sit around waiting, oh, is the government going to let me do this, that and the other rather than uh, how long is it going to be before the government stops doing that? It's the wrong attitude. Mm. Interestingly, uh, the, 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 the very good uh, left liberal uh, elite writer Janice Turner in The, the Times uh, last week uh, was, was finally expressing exasperation with mask wearing, which yeah. she hasn't up till now. And I do think that some people are beginning to tire of this. And I noticed actually just at the end of last week in shops where I'd previously been the own, only unmasked person that I no longer am. And it's a little bit more common on the trains as well, see people not doing mm -hmm. it. So there is a semi-liberation, but there is this huge number of people who still long to be kept under control for their own alleged safety. And I think it's going to be... Let's not be too premature about assuming everything's okay. I think, for instance, weddings and funerals and other things which are taking place in the, in the coming weeks will still be incredibly tightly restricted by comparison with what they ought to be or with what reason uh, would require. Mm. And the whole country is still enmeshed in, in, in restrictions and indeed in fear. And there are a lot of people working away busily to try and keep that fear going. Uh, on the other, other day on the way home, I, I went past just outside the centre of Oxford, set up in a park, uh, a little tented uh, camp of people offering free COVID tests on, on the taxpayer. Now, why? Uh, why has this appeared in this place? And I, I went and I said, well, do I have to be ill to, to, to be tested? No, 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 anybody can come. Uh, it's surge testing. Yeah. Well, I, if you do that, and I'd, I'd have to assume that if it happens on my way home, it happens on a lot of other people's ways home, uh, then the, the more people you test, the more positive results you're going to get. And so the more easy it is to say, oh, this hasn't gone away, you know, uh, it's not over, it'll be back in the mm. winter, we've got to carry on with the restrictions. There is still an enormous lobby which believes this, and it's, it's not powerless. Well, this is it. I mean, I was rather dismayed, but not entirely surprised to see the front page of The Guardian today, uh, in which it says that there's a backlash from scientists uh, as Boris Johnson prepares to lift all COVID restrictions. Because, of course, uh, Professor Susan Mitchie, uh, our favourite, is quoted as saying, allowing community transmission to surge is like building new variant factories at a very fast rate. Now, I'm sorry, Professor Susan, she's not a medical professor. What is she doing talking about how variant factories work? Well, it's all part of the I am a scientist, you will obey uh, attitude we've all developed. Uh, science used to be a defence against, uh, against ignorance and a defence against panic uh, because it was all about absolute objective uh, results and, and testing and experimentation. Now it's about the elevation into, into a sort of priesthood of people who've got long qualifications. Mm. Some of them may well deserve it. But I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that qualifications in social and experimental psychology give you the, the position to, to, to talk as Professor Mickey does. And maybe, I, maybe you, you think they do. I, I very much distinguish between what I call the hard sciences, the ones where actual experiment is still supreme and where things have to be tested to destruction before they're, before they're found to be valid and where anything you say has to be falsifiable, mm. uh, to the, the modern form, as I say, where somebody has a qualification, we must respect them, whatever they say. Uh, I, I think that that, that that just has to be wrong. But science has become a sort of pseudo-religion now. And, and anybody who says I'm a scientist has to be treated with respect, mm. even if what they say doesn't have a scientific basis. In my view, a scientist has to be listened to absolutely in his or her own discipline. 
because in, in that case, they have the, the knowledge and the understanding. They've done the experiments. If they talk generally, it's a different matter altogether. And I think we need to, 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 to begin to distinguish. But I'm not sure whether we live in a society which is educated enough to make that distinction. No, I think you're absolutely right. Scientists should be listened to in, as you say, their area of expertise, because in that area, they may well be expert. But they're not ex- well, experts. Yeah. But they're not experts in everything. No. You know, absolute rubbish. And as far as the um, uh, the rollout of, of the freedoms goes, I'm amazed at how many people are actually against it in the general public. I was looking at um, a story on Mail Online yesterday, and I always like to look at sort of the comments to get a, a feel for what the general public are thinking. And an awful lot, I would say at least 50% of the comments were against lifting the lockdown. Well, as you say, if you spread fear, uh, then you spread the desire for security. If people think that something terrible is coming over the horizon, then they will be happier and happier to be fancy and against it, even if there is no real need for that. Yeah. And I'm afraid that's what has been systematically done by very sophisticated and powerful and relentless government propaganda for many, many months. People are afraid. They're still afraid. And once you've made someone afraid, it's very hard indeed to to cure them of that fear and say, well, actually, what we've been saying for the past six, 16 months or so is no longer true. Stop worrying. Uh, it, it, and it comes from the same mouth as the one which said, be afraid, be yeah. very afraid, go home, stay at home, don't go out, uh, don't talk to anybody, don't uh, don't kiss your granny, uh, wrap yourself up in, in, in masks, do, absolutely cease to have any kind of social life. The same voices which said that, oh, relax, it's all right, nothing to worry about. And it's it's kind of unconvincing to a lot of people, I think. I'm not surprised by it, I mm. sympathise with them. I was never scared by it in the first place, but it, it, a lot of people genuinely were, and this is what was constantly, uh, constantly shocking me at the, mm. at the beginning. The number of people, intelligent, educated people, who were genuinely scared by what appeared to me to be crude propaganda, but it still worked. Mm, absolutely. So, but if, for example, this afternoon at five o'clock, Boris does say no more masks, um, with those few exceptions, perhaps that you mentioned, uh, no more social distancing, all bets are off, everything's back to normal. Will that not be a day that you said would never have come, though? No, I don't think so. I think the. the, the I, I, have I said it will never come? I, I don't. I, I think it's what well, I have said. It's very. It's, it's very hard to get rid of these things. I think we're going to live, particularly with travel restrictions, mm. and I think there's going to be big problems in schools and places of work uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I, I think because these things, having been established, are very, very hard to get rid of. Just as the ridiculous cues to have your testicles scanned and your uh, 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 anything liquid on your in, in your luggage thrown away. Uh, which came after September the 11th and that court case, mm. have never, ever been uh, relaxed and never will. It's just as the huge fortified gates at the end of Downing Street, which is supposed to protect Downing Street from an attack by Hezbollah, I think, in the truck bomb, uh, will, will never go. It, people will never have the courage to say, we're going to get rid of these things. And the, the long-term effect on workplaces, and indeed the long-term effect on the economy, which is, is, is just about to begin to be felt in a big way, though the inflation, which I've long predicted to start. Mm. Uh, that's also going to be there, whatever we do. So I don't know, I never, I, it's, I suppose it's possible, it may, may all become completely irrelevant because of some new unforeseen crisis that we have yet to experience. I don't know. But at, at the moment, I suspect that, that life is, is going to be stuck in this restricted, form-filling, quarantining, uh, generally scared state for a very long time to come. 
and you'll really feel it if you try and, and, and travel any distance from your home. Yeah, and I've certainly spoken to a lot of people who have said, well, you know, the thing is, it's not a bad idea to wash your hands every time you go in anywhere in public, and it's not a bad idea not to touch things because, you know, I'm just going to hold that with a cloth of some kind. Um, and you're right. I mean, that will be probably the way of things for the rest of time now. Well, that was all ritualistic, wasn't it? I was amused in, 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 in public lounges. Now, I, I wash my hands, and then... I am very, very careful. I either use a, a piece of um, a, a, piece, a piece of kitchen towels, yeah. which I can't not to touch the door on the way out, right. because that completely undoes all the hand washing work you've done. And, you know, I see people fanatically washing their hands for two minutes, <laughs> supposed to do, and then immediately they go and they touch the door. Yeah. It's a ritual uh, that they've adopted. It's not, a, it's not an actual rational precaution. If you're rational, it's the, the, the door is more dangerous than anything else in the, in, in the public yes. country. But it's a ritual which has been which has been adopted to comfort people rather than a real precaution. Mm. And also, in terms of the, the the lives of children, it's essential for them to have some experience with with dirt and everything else to to, to build up immunity. So we we may have overdone that too. I don't know. It it, it doesn't seem to me that we're we're being governed by rational people. No, and it doesn't seem to me that we're being governed by particularly strong-minded or courageous people. Either, and I think also fear is is the most powerful of all emotions. Yeah. And, well, there also there's also a bit of a whiff of Caligula's Rome about the cabinet. It seems to me, um, you know, first we had Matt Hancock, now we've got Michael Gove. All sorts of um, lurid allegations being made, which we won't go into here. Um, but it does seem as though they've been having quite a nice time. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Why well, we've all been um, sort of you know being being careful not to go anywhere. I think Caligula gets a very bad press. I think a horse. <laughs> a great deal superior to a lot of people in the current cabinet. Yes, I think that's probably true. But they do seem to have this kind of air of t- complete and utter arrogance, you know. And I know it's a, well, a well-worn phrase, you know, do as I say, not do as I do. But it does seem a bit like that, doesn't it? Well, you can't avoid it. Once you once you introduce this kind of thing, uh, then it's impossible for anybody to, to abide by it, just as it was impossible for the old Soviet elite to abide by the supposed egalitarianism, which mm. they were proposing everybody else. So they, they had special waiting rooms at railway stations, special uh, departure lounges in airports, special carriages on the trains, special places to live, special hospitals, and special shops to go to. But they got away with it because they could keep it all secret. Uh, in, in this country, we still have enough of a free press for this to be very difficult. And as long as this kind of thing goes on, there will be more people exposed for not keeping rules, which are impossible to keep anyway, and which nobody actually of any intelligence can seriously believe in all, uh, uh, in, in any case. No, I mean, that's why, even though it is incredibly hypocritical, I'm not one of those who actually attacks them for doing it. I'm just attacking them for telling us not to do it. Exactly, yeah. That is, that, that, that is their fault. It's, 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 it's in trying to impose on us things that they don't themselves believe and in, in, in not believing their own propaganda and in behaving as if they don't believe. And, and that is, I'm afraid, dis- really disqualifies them. Uh, from governments, mm. one of the many reasons why governments should should leave people alone as much as possible, because otherwise they're in, inevitably uh, in, in the middle of a jungle of hypocrisy. Yes, absolutely right. Stay with us, Peter, if you will. We'll come back to you. I wanted to ask you about the NHS, which has also become something uh, which will never be the same again. Uh, the Queen has awarded it, apparently, the George Cross, for heaven's sake. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens is with us, Man on Sunday columnist, of course. Peter, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you made of the announcement this morning in the Times that the Queen has awarded the George Cross uh, to the NHS, which is now fast becoming the new religion in this country. Well, I was struck by the, the only parallel that I know of, which is my birthplace, the island of Malta, 
which was collectively awarded the George Cross, yeah. after undergoing the most uh, terrifying and relentless bombing by uh, Mussolini and Hitler mm. uh, for a very long period of time. If you want to know what it was like, there's a, there's a novel by Nicholas Montserrat called The Capitan of Malta, in which it is described in detail. Mm. It's, it's, it's frightful. And the, the, the behavior of the Maltese, uh, whose quarrel it really wasn't, uh, under fire was extraordinary and, uh, and rather noble. And mm. I, I completely agree with that. I'm not sure whether this is very comparable. I, I, obviously, one admires people who go, particularly go to the, the Great Lakes and being trained uh, as, uh, as doctors, uh, particularly those who perform surgery. It, it takes a huge amount of courage to do that sort of thing, an enormous amount of hard work and, 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 and self-sacrifice and, and training before you begin to make a, a living out of it. And you have to give... Uh, something to that. And the same for nurses. I had an aunt, my aunt Ina, who was a nurse all her life in the old Nightingale tradition and uh, was uh, one of the most admirable people I've ever met. And the sort of work that she did was extraordinary. But I, I, I'm not sure the NHS itself is, a, is, a, is, a, is, is, not, is, is not the same thing as the people in it, all of whom obviously deserve the, the, the sort of respect which I've just expressed. The NHS is a, is a particular idea of how to provide uh, a, a free at the point of use uh, medical mm. service to a big country. It's not necessarily the best way of doing it, nor is it in, in many ways perfect. In fact, a, a friend of mine has recently undergone a most distressing series of, of, how shall I say, knockbacks, which have, have, have led to her uh, suffering quite a great deal from the NHS, and yeah. although many people can recount good experiences of it, I, I think you'll probably find that most, a lot of people you know can also recount bad experiences of it. I, I think we should separate uh, admiration for the for the dedication of, of medical staff from admiration for the organisation itself. I, I, it's, it's, I don't want to be, be grudging to people, uh, but I, I feel slightly odd about it, especially given the, the only comparison I can think of, which is a, mm. a, rather, different, a rather different sort of thing. Well, it's, so, it's, it's true, I, isn't the, it? The politics of the NHS is extraordinary. I, the, the, the French also have a health service. Uh, I think Anne Elizabeth Moutet wrote very interestingly about, about a year ago, uh, saying that the French don't just, they're, they're happy to have it, they're, they're glad to pay for it. Uh, in many ways, they consider it to be superior to ours, particularly because no one ever is put in a ward in a French hospital anymore. Everybody always goes in an individual room, something we've yet, yet to achieve. Uh, but they, they they simply don't can't imagine how anybody could worship it the way that we no. do, and I I think the French attitude may well be quite sensible. Well, they also have a far better system with their GPs, where the GP is only paid uh, per consultation as opposed to having a number of patients, which is how they do it here. You know, if you've got 100 patients, you get paid 100 times whatever the stipend is, whereas in France, you only get paid if you see 100 patients, which I think is a far well, better there, there, way to do it. There are many models for public health services, from, from Canada to France to Germany to Spain to wherever it is, and they're, and they're, they're all different, and we can learn a lot from all of them. But I think that the, the, the less you admire, uh, the less you learn, the, the less you admire, the more you, you learn, the more you admire, the less you learn. And I think it's, uh, holding your breath with admiration for, for the National Health Service is not going to get it improved to the point where it, where it will be the, the true equivalent of the, the health services of the, of the the most advanced countries in the world, which in many cases I just don't think it is. Uh, and so that has absolutely, before anybody even accuses me of it, I, I'm not in any way in, in this 
suggesting that the, the, the people who work in it are themselves incompetent or bad, because I'm not. The, the reverse of it. Many of them use their competence and skills despite the organisation, which in many cases gets in the way of what, of, of what they would otherwise do. Well, that's right. And the health and uh, care bill is going to be pushed through by Sajid Javid, I think, in, uh, in the next few days. And that will no doubt kick up all of the old arguments about the Tories trying to kill it off, sell it off, you know, ruin it. Uh, meanwhile, while giving more and more money to it. Well, yeah, I, I sympathise with some of this. I think that the, the, during the Thatcher period, the, the, the marketization of, of the health service and the reorganizations which have followed again and again and again did not do much good. And I think the suspicion of some people that, that there's an, an attempt to, to semi-privatise it is, is, is underway, not wholly unjustified by fact. So I, I, I really would wish this was not a party political issue. I think there has, the case has been put forward by more intelligent politicians and MPs that it, it should in some way become a, a, a non-political uh, a non-political issue in which both parties combined to form a, a, a way of governing it, which was taken outside mm. the the Labour Tory or any other argument, and I, I think that would be a good thing because if, if we're if we're if, we're concern, if our concern is primarily for the health of the country rather than for which party takes credit for the NHS, which seems to be what the parties think, uh, we would have a better health service. Yeah. I think so. We're right out of time. But look, just quickly, Peter, let me ask you about your encounter with the e-scooter, uh, only because uh, it's something we've talked about. Well, it happens time. to me. I've been writing about this, and then there I was on the pavement against the country, and there was this, this, this geezer on an e-scooter coming towards me quite fast. And I, and, and I thought, here it is. And it, this is what's going to happen to everybody uh, if we legalise these stupid things. And we've got a limited amount of time. Write to them.com. We'll tell you how to reach your MP. If it's, in, if it's in your local area, your council will have a consultation where you can object to it. But object to it, because this is the last chance you get. If you don't object now, they will be legalised and it will be much, much worse. I saw another child uh, was, it was injured by one, uh, I think, yesterday. Uh, and, and that's particularly serious. Children, old people, mm. the, the blind and partially sighted and the deaf are terribly vulnerable. And, and they will be a disaster if we legalise them. No. You can't stop them. I think you're absolutely right. Peter, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Medal Sunday columnist, a man that fights against uh, the e-scooter, as I do. Uh, in fact, there's a petition out there that you can sign in Parliament. Uh, check my Twitter out. Check my Facebook page out. You'll find it. Go and sign it. And as he says, go and object to some of these plans to roll out more e-scooters and more rental availability for people to ride around, apparently without any uh, care for anybody else uh, on the streets of our cities and our towns. And not just the streets the pavements as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk about the future uh, of the Labour Party with Dr Rakiba San, independent expert in British public attitudes. Rakib, a very good morning to you. Hi Mike, how are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, in a way for the Tories, it was good news, wasn't it? Because uh, they're stuck now with Sakir Starmer for the foreseeable future. Um, and even though if it was uh, going to be a change of leadership, it might have been better, it might have been worse, but it would certainly have been more interesting to people than Keir Starmer hanging around. Well, what I'd say, Mike, is that I find Labour's reaction to the by-election results slightly bizarre. Yes. Uh, its majority was slashed from 3,525 votes to 300, uh, 323 votes. And that's a significant reduction. This is a seat that Labour has held since 1997, uh, Blair's landslide. The Tories have been in government now for 11 years and a rival left-wing candidate in the form of George Galloway. Mm. 
won 22% of the vote. So there are things from the by-election that Labour should be concerned about. So I do feel that it's a case of misplaced triumphalism. And I think, in a way, it just shows... um, it's it's, it's mediocrity, in a sense. It shows that how badly Labour has performed, that they think election result of this nature is something to celebrate. Something to crow about. Well, I think it came as a surprise even to them. Mm. Um, And and you might argue as well that were it not for Matt Hancock's shenanigans, the Tories may well have won the seat. But I was likening at the weekend, Rakeem, to Mm -hmm. uh, the Scottish football fans claiming a great victory by getting a nil-nil draw with England at Wembley. Well, I, I, I think they're... When it comes to Labour's reaction, I, I think that I think the reaction ignores the fact that they've got they still have very serious issues. Mm. I think one thing that came out of the by-election is something that I wrote uh, wrote about for both the Spectator and Spiked, is that you have this uh, you have this contradiction in 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 a sense, Mike, where Labour want to be the party of radical transgenderism, but they also want to be the natural party for British Muslim traditionalists. Now, the reality of the matter is when it comes to these, if you call them interest groups, they have very different objectives and beliefs. And I think that it's something that Labour, they've almost, it's been an appeasement of of groups which have very different views, uh, very different social beliefs. And unfortunately, they have sowed the seeds of their own problems, uh, the Labour Party. And I do think further down the line, especially British Muslim awareness, um, improves and heightens when it comes to Labour's policies towards uh, trans rights. I think that that could, and, and also I think there's something that um, should be mentioned, that Labour actually went to the last general election supporting on-demand abortion for any reason up to birth. Mm. Now, Mike, if you were to reveal that in socially conservative British Muslim communities, including in my hometown of Luton, yeah. it would go down like a lead balloon. Right. So I do I do feel that there is a danger now for Labour that its relationship with British Muslims, if it carries on supporting forms of radical transgenderism, they're going to have issues. If it wants to be the political arm of Stonewall, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. But you can't simultaneously also be the party um, of socially conservative Muslims living in Britain. No, of course. And also, you know, you get the impression from, from Keir Starmer and from Labour in general, they've spent a lot of time sort of cozying up to those Muslim communities and hoping mm. by doing so that that would guarantee them their votes. And in the past, it has worked. So what's different now then? Because the, left, the Labour Party hasn't gone particularly any more radically uh, radical left than it was two or three years ago. I, th- I think uh, another point to make is foreign policy, yeah. if I'm being absolutely honest, Mike. I think that when it comes to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the previous Labour leader, his positions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, Indian-Pakistani uh, tensions surrounding t- territorially disputed Kashmir, um, Corbyn's views were very much in line with many British Muslims. And that's also the case with George Galloway. Mm. And I think George Galloway, he's talked a lot about these foreign policy issues. He's also talked about uh, anti-Muslim prejudice in British society. So you can almost see there that, he, in a way, he represents a quite serious electoral threat, particularly in constituencies, well, inner-city constituencies and a number of post-industrial towns, yes. which have a notable British Muslim population. Mm. And um, the thing about George Galloway is, I think I heard on uh, Friday morning that that was the best performance by an independent in any mm. election since George Galloway uh, just had, had, had a great one in, in Bradford. And I'm led to believe, and you'll probably be able to tell me, we don't know yet, uh, there may mm. well now be another um, 
uh, by-election in East London uh, if the, the, the claims and the charges against the, the sitting Labour MP uh, end up coming to something? Well, I think that and, and that's very interesting in the sense that you look at some of the campaign material that Labour distributed during the Batley and Spend by-election. There's there one leaf in particular which was very critical of the Conservative Party's relationship, diplomatic mm. relations, yes. with the Narendra Modi-led yes, government. Mm. And, and I think that, OK, it, it, they felt that that was a way to shore up its British-Pakistani support in Batley. But that can have negative knock-on consequences when it comes to um, cities such as Leicester, yes. which have a notable British uh, British Indian Hindu presence. Yeah. And it was interesting, Mike, then the last general election in the two Leicester seats, Labour's vote share dropped by 11 and 16 percentage points. So you can already see a fraying of relations between um, the Labour Party and British Indians, particularly those who are Hindu. And it also be a problem in parts of West London as well. Harrow East is one constituency that comes to mind. So I feel that Labour, if they want to play this uh, kind of game of essentially divide and rule um, with South Asian communities, it could really hurt them electorally in the future. That's right. And one of the other things that was noticeable, and I mean, they were all guilty of this, every single mm. uh, party, not one of them really highlighted the case uh, of the Batley teacher who's still in hiding, who's still in fear of his life because of what happened mm. several months ago. And and uh, we were, quite unbelievably, you probably saw the interview that Liz uh, Ledbetter gave about uh, mm. when she was asked the question, well, what about this guy? What, you know, what are you, gonna, what are you prepared to say about him? And she basically said, well, you know, what he does is up to him. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. It's not up to him. Surely he should be reinstated. Uh, the people who have been threatening his life should have been arrested and something else should have happened. I think disputes of that nature, firstly, as we discussed before, those protests outside the school um, were absolutely shameful. Mm. And I think that it, it was also shameful that can, can at least express a view. And, and, and I think that there was a real reluctance um, when it came to candidates being asked about that particular situation. Mm. They're very reluctant to offer a very clear view. Yeah. George Galloway, like him or loathe him, he said that there's a discussion to be had in terms of parental involvement yeah. when it comes to how lessons are taught and also you know, to what extent should LGBT relationships be promoted mm. in, in schools. So at least you can disagree with him or not, but at least he offered a view. Yes. And I think that in itself can be respected. Right. I thought, Mike, if I'm being honest, I, I followed the by-election closely. I thought the Tories were deeply complacent. I think their yes. approach will let the Labour Party and the Workers' Party of Britain fight among themselves in a leftist tussle. We'll run a bland, safe submarine campaign and that will get us over the line. And that I think there is also an attitude now within the Conservative Party that working class voters who voted to leave the European Union, uh, voted to leave the European Union, whoever they voted for before, now they'll just fall in, fall in the Tory party's lap. Mm. I think that was a. I think that was a. That's a very serious mistake. Bre uh, Brexit voters who have voted for minor parties before, they actually have very strong anti-establishment attitudes. So the Tory party really needs to work to win their votes. And if they feel that these votes are just going to fall into their lap, I think Batley and Spen. Uh, that was an example which really showed that that's not going to be the case. No, of course. And what about um, uh, George Galloway? Because he'll probably be encouraged by this number of mm. votes that he got. So presumably if there is a by-election in, in East London, he'll probably uh, stand there, won't he? Well, I think that I think that the fact that he won 22% of the vote, that is an impressive performance. Yeah. 
there's there's no getting away from that and as i said before mike when it comes to inner city uh, constituencies especially in cities such as birmingham uh, that'd be one city that springs to mind and, and post-industrial towns seats that have a notable british muslim population yeah if there's a party there that is quite socially conservative um, and they emphasize issues such as anti-Muslim prejudice in British society, and they take a very clear pro-Palestinian uh, position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and they're fairly robust in their criticism of Narendra Modi, um, the India, Indian premier. That, that could, that could uh, win a significant number of British Muslim voters. I don't think there's any getting away from that. But it is quite weird, isn't it, Rakib, that mm. here we are in the UK in 2021 mm. uh, saying that Palestine and Kashmir are two positions that every politician running in an election in certain parts of the country must have, a, have, a, have must take a position on. Absolutely, but that, that, that's just the nature of uh, constituencies uh, and just how British Muslims are distributed across the country, Mike. In, in, particular, in particular areas, they have a very high um, British Muslim presence. Mm. So in certain constituencies, issues such as Palestine and Kashmir, whether we like it or not, those foreign um, policy issues are of salience yes. um, among British Muslim voters. But what was really interesting, Mike, is that George Galloway, he also... He almost he, he provided this old Labour messaging almost mm. in a way that this sort of anti woke left wing alternative as we know um, he's he's a, he's a passionate Brexiteer as well yes. so that old Labour Eurosceptic politics that that might have actually gone down well with some white working mm. class voters yeah I mean can he push that as well can he push that all the way to say um, other issues such as LGBT uh, and the wokists that we all uh, dis despise. You know, there's a piece on the front of the Times today, mm. uh, which is a study from Frank Luntz, um, who's spent many years working for the Republican Party in the US, basically saying that these cultural divisions that, mm. between the woke and the unwoke in America are going to be basically the biggest dividing line in the future amongst voters here. No, and, and I think that, that that's the lesson to learn from Batley and Spen, that George Galloway's support was not purely confined to British Muslim communities. Mm. And I feel that if he takes that kind of anti-woke um, left-wing alternative, just focuses on things such as workers' rights, yeah. um, employment security, but also talks about what he considers to be LGBT overreach yes. in social institutions, then I do think that he's... He, I, th I think a party on that kind of platform, especially in certain constituencies and post-industrial towns, they could pose a pretty serious threat yeah. and they could further complicate the electoral landscape for the Labour Party. Yeah. And does it also mean, in a way, that the Tory party kind of needs to become a bit less woke as well, it needs to move a little bit away from that? Because you can still be fair, you can still believe in equality mm. without having to be completely woke about it, can't you? I think so. I think that we can talk a great deal about equality of opportunity. Mm. How do we create a more meritocratic society? Why we should work to root out various forms of racial and religious discrimination in British society. But I, I think that a complaint that many traditional Tory voters would have is that they feel that on certain issues, the Conservative Party is not quite conservative enough. Mm. And I do feel... Um, if, I do feel there is a, there's, there's almost that liberal section, that socially liberal section of the Conservative Party where you, when it comes to issues of trans rights, for example, mm. uh, they're not in line with socially conservative Tory voters, even in the shires, yeah. if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. So I think that one thing for certain, Mike, is that the result of the Batley and Spend by-election 
it's made our post-Brexit politics all the more fascinating. It has. I mean, interestingly as well, and I I mentioned this earlier on, and I'm sure you know this, Mm. but the swing to the Tories was actually about 3%, 2.9%, I think, which apparently, if that was extrapolated across the country in a general election, uh, would mean that Labour would lose another 11 seats. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm saying. That Labour need to calm down a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of this misplaced triumphalism. I think I think Labour can take heart in that Batley and Spen is a is a pro Brexit seat. Yes. I believe that it delivered a Leave vote of sixty percent. So what it does show is that Sir, Sir Keir Starmer, even though he was the chief architect of the second referendum policy, which is deeply anti-democratic, and it shattered Labour's relationship with many Brexit voting working class communities, that it, it can give the party some confidence. But my point is acknowledge the various dynamics that emerged from the by-election and if, if, if you do overly celebrate um, your majority being cut from 3,525 seats to 323 mm. in a seat you've held since Blair's landslide in 1997 and mm. the Tories have been in government for 11 years then it does make you look a little bit silly and it doesn't make you look like a particularly serious political party. No that is the trouble and I think so much of what Keir Starmer does including I don't know if you saw the pictures he put out on Saturday um, watching the England game, which has just looked terribly staged to me. You know, he's sitting in a pub, it looks like, um, with no drink in front of him. And then suddenly the, the, the picture at the end, he's got a drink because somebody went, oh, there's no pub. Uh, there's no drink in the pub. And just, you know, everything he does seems to be to appease the party. And I wonder whether this win has done away with those on the left of the party, the Owen Joneses of this world, who have been calling for him to resign because he's useless. I, I, I think that it's given... Uh, Starmer a bit of breathing space. I think he he was he was under pressure going into the Batley and Spen by-election. If the Tories were to have gained that seat, I think that his position um, as Labour leader would be seriously under threat. But just to go back on those photos, I agree with you in that if it, it all feels a bit forced mm. when Sir Keir Starmer talks about patriotism. Yeah. Well, I want to hear more about what what if he talks about British patriotism. What does that include? What does that incorporate? What kind of values and principles does he see being at the heart of it? Mm. And I think the big problem for Sakir, Mike, is that people, there's many voters who don't really know what he stands for. Mm. What does he believe in? What is his vision for post-Brexit Britain? Yeah, I don't I think, think he, he knows what he stands for either. I think, I, well, I, I think that it just all feels a bit bland, technocratic, managerial. Yeah. And I think when it comes to issues surrounding patriotism and national pride, some of those photos, it just feels very forced. Yeah. He needs to do a lot more in terms of articulating his patriotic vision for for the UK, even for England in particular, because Labour is, is really struggling in England. Um, if truth be told, the Tories are very dominant when it comes to English politics. So there's many issues that he really needs to consider and he he needs to take more seriously. And and a, a few sh- photo shoots here or there is not going to do the job. It's really not. Dr. Rakib Hassan, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Rakib, independent expert in British public attitude. The wokists are going to be the new battleground, not just for the Labour Party, but for everybody. Uh, but you don't have to do what they say. Uh, you can, of course, argue with them. You can, of course, take a different view. That's what we do here uh, at Talk Radio, because, of course, uh, we are not particularly woke here at the Independent Republic. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk about that now with Liz Cole, co-founder of Us For Them, uh, a brilliant campaigning group uh, campaigning on behalf of children's rights because in schools, uh, just even this morning, the NSPCC has said a generation of children cannot be allowed to be damned by COVID uh, because children's trauma is now reaching ridiculous levels. We spoke last week about how many people uh, have now got children at home 
400,000 children not in, not in school having been told to go home and self-isolate because they've been in contact with someone who had uh, a positive test. It really is quite remarkable. Liz Cole is here. Liz, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. I mean, this is helpful to you guys, I would think, from the NSPCC, but I'm not quite sure whether the campaign that the Telegraph has launched um, about saving the children um, has got any specific demands. I mean, obviously, you'd like to see, I mean, I'd like to see it for my kids, you know, no more masks, no more testing. Yeah, I think it is It is very useful and it's certainly a relief to us to see after, you know, we launched us for them in May mm. um, 2020, after all this time, to now see, you know, an increase in the number of voices calling for children to be prioritised and to see um, children on the front pages. So yeah. I certainly think it's a positive step. I think we have to ask ourselves why it was so difficult to actually make the case mm. for children to be prioritised. Um, it certainly seems that, you know, Certainly more recently, we've heard much more about these issues. But I think the problem we now face is that significant damage has been done um, with this billion days of schooling lost and the damage is ongoing. So as you say, um, you know, as a call to action, what is it that we actually want? Um, I think from my perspective, thinking about this, I think the billion days of lost schooling is, you know, absolutely catastrophic. Mm. What we need to see is for children to be returned to normality, to as normal as possible an environment. That's how they're going to you know, best have a stable foundation to recover. Yeah. We really need to take school closures off the table um, as, as a measure. And that, that is still a concern. I think we really need to look that in, in the face now and say, this was a complete disaster. This can't happen again. And then we can you know, start thinking about recovery yes Um, but until we have a normal environment and until we can say to children you have that certainty your schools are not going to be closed you're not going to be pushed out of school um i struggle to see how any proper recovery program can really be established um, without that solid foundation so would you hope to hear from boris johnson today something specific about schools because my worry is he's not going to do that I I really would like to hear it. And I agree with you. I'm not convinced that he's going to. I think, you know, to my mind, you know, the issue with with children and schools should be at the top of the agenda. I'd like to hear Boris Johnson address the children of the nation directly today um, and, you know, really give some firm commitments about what they can expect to see um, from the government. But even just an acknowledgement of what young people have actually sacrificed over the last um, 15 months mm. um, and to actually you know really commit to taking actions because you know we hear have a lot of you know talk and discussion but as we said last week you know l- lack of urgency around addressing the issues yeah I think that's absolutely right because my worry about some of the schools is that they have been taking um, the sort of the rules into their own hands if you like and I mean many of them have closed altogether some of them have hinted that come the September season uh, and come the next sort of academic year they will still be using masks and they might even still be asking for tests to be done well I think the um, we, we've got to have um, clear direction um, from the government I think we have to we have to say now that children need normality um, we know we'd already discussed the, the mask issue. I know there's a lot of variation um, around the country with children um, having to wear masks. And yet we know 
there was very limited evidence as to the effectiveness of that measure and mounting evidence of harm. So there doesn't seem to me to be any justification for that to continue. Um, so I think the government needs to be as forceful in its messaging now um, that actually children do need normality and making a clear statement about that and reflecting that in its guidelines. Because surely uh, the number of days lost, uh, as you said earlier, is so huge now uh, that it must make people, in particularly educators, sit up and take notice. But a lot of them just seem to still be worried more about the spread of COVID. I think to be fair to schools and, and head teachers have been juggling, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for the head teachers in this country who have been juggling, um, you know, incredibly difficult um, situation, you know, over the last 15 months. But they they have to obviously stand in the middle um, and have a, have a big balancing act to, to deal, deal with. I think that what we do need to move away from is thinking that, it, you know, we know that the risks have been mitigated um, from the virus. The transmission is not the main danger now that we're facing in schools. The danger that we're facing is the lost education. And I think, yeah. you know, to be fair, that head teachers in schools do do recognise that. Um, but we have to kind of dial back this fear messaging, I think, um, and really focus on kids. And if we want to put them first, we have to actually put them first um, and, and do things that are going to benefit children and stop seeing them as as, as vectors because yeah. that's a lot of the language as well is incredibly harmful um, for children to be described in this way for 15 months um, and they're children they're children and they need they need us to give back to them now yes and I think a lot of parents are a bit unsure of challenging the schools as well Liz I mean what would you say to parents who are frightened of doing that because um Many of them, you know, they say, oh, well, the kids don't want to be singled out. They don't want them to be made to feel like they're the, like, the odd one out if they're not wearing a mask and all this kind of thing. I mean, what can parents do um, to just improve their child's life at school, really? I think what what we found from our members that's worked well is actually to be, um, you know, be collaborative and have conversation with the school mm. um, if, if they have concerns about anything. Um, but also support from other parents. I think that's been a, a real, you know, a real problem because if you feel like you're, for example, the only one who's worried about your child wearing a mask in class and, mm. and isn't sure that that's the right thing to do, if you're the only parent, that's quite difficult. So I think parents, you know, getting involved and meeting and discussing things with one another is really helpful um, and, and engaging you know, collaboratively with the school right. to just express that, you know, show, show the evidence and, and, and share the concerns there. Yes. But that, again, is the trouble, isn't it? Because they'll all, they, they will preach this sort of narrative and we get letters at home all the time. You know, somebody else has tested positive for COVID. We can't tell you who it is, but, you know, uh, hopefully they're going to be fine. And normally in the school that I'm dealing with, they don't send everybody home. They just send sort of a small-ish bubble of people home. You know, but it's going to be going on like that, I assume, for the rest of next year as well. Well, let's hope not. I think that's not going to be an acceptable outcome if we have this level of disruption continuing into the third academic year um, for children that we cannot allow that yeah no um, what i meant what, what i meant was that that people will be testing positive for it probably um if they take a test that was going to happen from time to time but they just have to deal with it differently don't they 
I think they have to deal with it differently. We have to, you know, be saying that we can't be sending children um, home if if there's a single positive case. Uh, my preferred outcome would be that if a child tests positive, that child would isolate, mm. um, but not the not the contacts. Right. Um, that would be, you know, our, our preference. That for, would be for that outcome, and that would be um, much closer um, to normality. But let's see what Boris Johnson says. Um, about that today. Yes, well, let's hope for something decent, some decent news just for a change, because we could really do with it. Liz, thank you very much indeed. Liz Cole, co-founder of Us For Them, uh, a great campaigning group if you're looking for some support uh, in order to help you figure out what to say to your school if you're not happy with the way that they're treating your child, if you're not happy with the way that they're forcing your child into doing something that he or she does not want to do. Uh, I think the time has come for parents to be a little bit more um, proactive here. I'm not saying that parents should run schools, but certainly the schools should take account of parents' wishes and certainly of children's wishes as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.